very excited to talk to Ashley Rogers Burner today, who is the director, I want to get it right, of the Johns Hopkins Institute for Education Policy. Yes. Uh, awesome. In Maryland. And, um, you know, Ashley, I have known you for a little while, uh, or we, you know, professionally uh, connected before. And I think a lot about when we met, what you discussed about how the United States could have a system of pluralist schools or pluralist school system, let's put it that way. And as even as I talk about it, sometimes I'm not sure that I'm getting it right. And I keep thinking like, I need to go back to Ashley and ask her to explain it to me better because I'm putting it out there. And then people ask me questions that I'm not 100% certain about. So could you just start us off by explaining what does a pluralist system of schools look like? Yes, thank you. And I'm delighted to be with you today. Thank you again for the invitation. So educational pluralism is just a different way to structure public education. Okay. And it's the pluralism part means the structure of a, a public education system has diverse options. So, you know, we talk in this country about school choice, but pluralism has parent decision-making built in by design. So that the pluralism piece that's so different for us is that most democracies fund a variety of schools on equal footing. And I can give many examples of that. But the other piece of pluralism that is so important in today's fractured world is this notion of a shared academic content. And this doesn't mean a lockstep textbook that everybody shares. It Rather, it means that every child learns about a good bit of similar stuff. They may learn about it through a different lens, but they're still creating a common conversation. And from what we know about the value of a rigorous intellectual curriculum that's shared, it builds social cohesion and opportunity. Okay, so a couple things came out of that. You say most democracies have uh, pluralism in education. You're saying across Europe, across Asia, you know, some of the real high flyers like Singapore and Finland, they don't have the United States approach of you put a building in the middle of an area and then that building is everything to the kids in that area. Correct. Yeah. They don't have it. What we call like in our in our country, we used to be pluralistic. Our country used to fund um, Catholic schools, you know, Lutheran schools, Congregationalist schools, Jewish day schools. And it wasn't until the middle of the 19th century that and all the Catholic immigrants that many white Anglo-Saxon Protestants did not think could become able citizens. So you have this bizarre culture war in the middle of the 19th century where the post-Civil War Republican Party and the Ku Klux Klan make <laughs> common cause against Catholic schooling. And, wow. and that is the origin of the uniform school system that we have had for a hundred years. And um, so, okay. and so, so we're outliers because of that history. Whereas most of our, our peer nations were pluralistic as we were and just stayed pluralistic, became more pluralistic. The Netherlands funds 36 different kinds of schools on equal footing. Yeah. So how does that not violate the separation of church and state? I just have to ask the question. Well, sure. I mean, they, so it, it, the Netherlands has been a secular nation for as long as we have. And it, you know, that it, it, it's, um, 
it's actually not a religious argument. It's actually based on the, the understanding that education can't be neutral. So you need to fund a variety of institutions. In our country, there are some, for want of a better term, school choice mechanisms. And I don't like that term okay. um, and I, for reasons I can explain. But we have uh, school choice mechanisms like the tax credits where people can make donations to scholarship granting organizations and get a uh, uh, just, you know, return on their tax liability, that's constitutionally valid in every state. It's never been successfully contested as a mechanism. The mechanism of direct funding to, but well, let me just say about tax credits, tax credits aren't considered public dollars. So mm -hmm. that's why it's not considered a breach of separation of church and state. On the other hand, even vouchers, Vouchers are public dollars that can go to low-income parents or other targeted groups to attend private schools. Vouchers are only constitutionally viable in some contexts, at least the current state of law. So the, it, you know, it. I guess the point is that this, that the, um, the kind of notion of separation in church and state as a kind of hard line that never can be crossed is, is sort of a fiction. It's a modern mm -hmm. fiction that mm -hmm. our legal system has worked out sort of generosity of spirit around it. Um, so the other thing that I, in your first description that jumps out at me is uh, common core curriculum, because, mm -hmm. you know, People didn't like it. <laughs> and uh -huh. People kind of yeah. freaked out because we've got yes. six states and we're all our own. And I don't care if the kids in Mississippi are learning a fraction of what the kids in Massachusetts are learning. You can't tell us what to teach our kids. How do you get yeah. around that? Yeah. So the Common Core State Standards and math, where you have the content and the skills, be you know very similar. Um, is one thing, but when you get into English language arts and social studies, skills which is what the Common Core State Standards promotes, skills are very different than content. So a skill would be find the main idea, right? Yeah. Or provide evidence for, and you really can't do that on any sophisticated literature, but yet that's what the Common Core State Standards ask you. You can't find the main idea on Hamlet. You know, I mean, this is just, <laughs> it's, an, it's, it's leaving so much off the table, but a, a content rich curriculum on the other hand actually has kids encounter and master really important, critical knowledge and, and demonstrating competence on it. Now in a pluralistic heterogeneous system, how in the world do you navigate that? Yeah. So I'm glad you asked because that's the first, that's the most important question. You have to set general knowledge domains that different school sectors, different types of schools can fulfill in their own ways um, with some benchmark have to knows. So I'll give you I'll give you an example of what that looks like. So in, you know, a pluralistic democracy, all the kids make whether they go to an Inuit school or a secular school, Montessori school or a Catholic school may have to learn, say, the foundations of government. That's just a have to or may have to learn the nations of the world and geography just to have to. And they can, of course, deliver that through the ethos, the culture, the pedagogy, and so forth. But it's you're dealing with the same stuff. And the assessments are knowledge-based, knowledge mastery. Now, here are some really interesting examples of how this can work. So most most European nations are pluralistic in their school systems. Most European nations require comparative religion and ethics 
every year. Yeah. Now in our country, if teachers start talking about the five pillars of Islam, some parents think that's indoctrination. Sure. But when you're in a school that is meets your values, comports with your values, learning about other ideas is seen as part of being an educated person, not indoctrinatory. So the way I would put that is there's, they're able to separate exposure from indoctrination. So you may go to a Jewish day school. Why can't we? So (laughs) we have it wrong. We have it utterly wrong. We have this default of a uniform school system and wildly eclectic content. And what that means is, as ever, the low-income kids are the ones left behind. But knowledge building closes achievement gaps. I'm going to give you one more example. This happens to be my favorite example. The Netherlands, which of course is a very secular country compared to the United States is high religiosity, so-called. The Netherlands funds creationist schools, which would light the hair of a lot of folks here on fire. But, But the children in those creationist schools have to demonstrate knowledge of evolutionary theory on a state assessment. Wow. They don't, they have to be taught it. It's, it's different exposure versus indoctrination. I mean, you can't compel belief in any democracy, but exposure is not compelled belief. So it's a very different proposition. It would take a long time for some of the parents in our country to accept that distinction. I happen to believe that exposure is, feels less threatening when it's done in an environment that you trust. So you see a system of exit exams for high school students? Yes, exactly. Exit exams that are content rich. The Netherlands, it's every few years, you know. And who who puts together those exams? So I think ideally it wouldn't be the state. It wouldn't be the government. It would be sort of universities. Like in the UK, their exit exams are, are written by some of the major universities and graded by those universities. And so it's an external third party and um, yeah, and it's not about admission to those universities. It's just part right. of, you know, you have to pick one. And does does a student have to pass in order to leave? It depends. So you, many of those systems, yes, you have to pass in order to leave and get your no. diploma. Many no. of those systems, of course, in the last two years of high school allow students to differentiate. Like if you're going to go to the university, you can take a more intellectually intense path and then go on to study law as an undergrad, for example, and then have really great vocational options that are really prepared you know, give you a, a a credential that you can take to be employed. Actually, it's the requirement to be employed. So, you know, there's a little bit more play in the joints there. Yeah, I know Missouri, we have a measure of college or career readiness, and it's basically getting a passing grade on like ACT, ACT work keys, AccuPlace, mm-hmm. uh, ASVAB. There's a list of things that high school students could take and they get a passing grade. This last year of, of the students who got a high school diploma in four years, 60% met one of those benchmarks. And so 40% are leaving high school with a diploma, knowingly not ready for college or career. And I don't see how you could create a system that's worse than that. That I agree with you. I mean, that there's some dishonesty built in there that is not fair to kids. And, you know, part of, part of the benefit of, of a, of a mastery of content exam is you can't, it, it's unlike our exam regime here in the States, which puts all the blame on teachers, all the burden on teachers. 
an exit exam actually creates a shared burden with the student. You know, you've got to step up to the plate. You've got to, you know, and, and of course we know that kids come differently prepared. And so it makes it, there need to be resources that follow certain kids who are going to be more at risk or more fragile, but it's just a different premise. I also remember you speaking once about this notion of holding schools accountable by doing intensive site visits. Yes. Can you talk about that a little bit? Oh, yes. That's that's great. Yeah, so, so that I don't get it wrong as I talk about it. <laughs> oh, I'm sure you're getting it right. So, yeah. So this is, I mean, I'm not, not sure the extent to which this would work at scale in our country for several reasons. Number one, it's very expensive. Yeah. Number two, it requires very, very expert you know, inspector. Yeah. So, it, so the best examples are the Netherlands and the U- United Kingdom. They've had an inspectorate, as it's called, or site visits since 1834 in England. Wow. And even earlier, I believe in the Netherlands, but um, the purpose of the, of the site visits is to kind of have a full look at the school, not just their test scores. You know, like I said, they have these great exit exams and benchmark assessments that are content specific, but, you know, what is the school um, climate like? What are, how do the parents, you know, what does instruction look like? It's really about the instructional core and the culture, which are the two most important factors in schools. And, um, and uh, really, you know, from all the studies I've seen, a, a really great system of site visits and exit coupled with exit exams, those two things set a high bar that have an indirect impact on school quality. They also, those two countries in particular, are willing to sort of get involved when schools are falling behind. They provide structured support. If you're doing great, you don't have to be visited again for five years. So it's, yeah. you know, they they try. Sometimes they get too bureaucratic, but they try not to. Yeah, they yeah. kind of recalibrate and everything. Um, I think one thing that strikes me when I'm looking at the protocols that these these inspectors use is they are very comfortable using expert judgment as opposed to a rubric of checkbox. Yeah. And they're able and willing to say, these inspectors are were themselves great teachers. They've been through two years of training. When they say the instruction is high caliber, we trust their judgment. And in our country, we, have, we are so compliance oriented in our educational right. systems that it's hard, to, it would take us a while to get to that point. Right. But then I see schools that just go on forever and ever and ever. And, you know, their their test scores, which is what we use to judge them, don't even come close to meeting any mark, you know, single digit no. rate for proficiency. And they just keep going. And maybe they're identified on a list, but I don't know if they're really getting supports. And I wonder about a child who starts kindergarten and goes through 12th grade in one of those districts. Right. You you know that their prospects are are dim just you just know right. that they are when they start. They should right. not have to start there, and yet they have to start That's there. exactly right. That's exactly right. But you see, what you're what you're really focusing here is on academic quality. Yes. And I think when I look at the policy landscape today, I think the one th- one thing that dismays me, besides the persistence of the districts are the only carrier of public education, which I think is factually false, and certainly um, it's not anyway. That's a, a concern. The other is the libertarian side of the equation, where there are some school choice advocates are opposed to accountability, opposed yeah. to academic quality. And the the, the the kind of default there seems to be parents' enrollments decisions should be the sole driver of quality. 
And I, I don't think that I don't, I see no research that backs that up. In fact, quite the opposite. I think if you look at the public purpose of education, why do we fund education in the first place? It's not just about individual autonomy and individual success. It's about the next generation and we're all in it together. So for that and other reasons, I think we, we would be foolish to let go of kind of academic quality measures. Yeah. And it also, I think the school choice, you know, environment writ large right now where everyone's fighting with each other, there's so much competition between charter schools and public schools and private schools. And, you know, I hear uh, public school superintendents deride, they want to block any new charter schools and charter schools feel like, you know, I, you know, they speak badly about traditional public schools, TPS, whatever they want to call them. And then the private school thing, especially if they're religious, and we've just created this like, and I know this is true. I know for a fact this is true. The parent doesn't care what the label is on the school. They don't often, sometimes they don't know. There's survey right. data that That's they'll right. say they go to a public, traditional public school and they're at a charter school and so on. You know, I don't think that matters uh, in the in the eyes of the parent, but this, this intersector uh, sniping at each other isn't helping at all. I, and that's, that is one of the appeals of an educationally pluralistic system for me, because there should be room for everyone and every school should be able to consistently improve. And in fact, you know, my colleagues in England don't compare school sectors in the Netherlands. They would not compare school sectors for a long time because they're interested in every school being distinct and every school being high quality. That I mean, there, sh- there should like it's it's high. I don't think we realize how highly dysfunctional it is. The situation you just described, where there's br- brutal competition in this zero sum game, that's not the way we should be rolling. And and yeah. I I see it as the direct outcome of a uniform school system for a hundred years, where only one sector, the district schools, had legitimacy. And yeah. everybody else had to prove based on research or outcomes, whatever, that they were legitimate. And I understand the role of research. I think it's really important. But I also think it would be wonderful if we could get past this hump and start talking about school quality in more general terms, supporting districts. Look, our institute works with a lot of districts that are doing really, really good things for their students. There's yeah. not one school sector that A, doesn't have bright spots, B, discouraging parts. Mm-hmm. It, there's no one, there's not a superior sector, particularly, except maybe the Catholic school, high schools and the research, but. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it makes me think of my colleague, Mike McShane, you know, Mike, who lives mm-hmm. in Waterford, Ireland, and his daughter's either school age or approaching school age. And it just seems very seamless, you know, when when they need to decide where she goes to school, they have a very rig- rigorous academic school. They've got a very progressive, open-minded kind of school. They have a school that focuses on students with disabilities. And these schools aren't trying to get each other's kids no. whatsoever, right? They just operate in their orbits and they, you know, they have happy parents at all of them. And if they don't, they don't, they don't, um, they're not sustainable, right? And I don't, even in Missouri, we haven't been able to get any sort of open enrollment pass because they're like, well, then the kids from the bad district will come want to come to our district. And it's a lot of an I paid the property taxes. So I, by definition, get to have my kids in my district. And it gets really uh, like tribal. And it's, it's very like, tribal. It's a good well, way to put it. 
why uh, why does it matter? <laughs> because in states where they had have had at least public open enrollment, kids are going both directions, right? Like yes. kids are leaving the air quotes good districts and coming into the good districts, and people are going both directions, and it ends up being like you know uh, a more of a system wide like let's try to be the rising tide that lifts all boats, not this like, but right now there's a lot of distrust and a lot of fear in Missouri that if you let parents pick where their kids go to school, um, you know, they're going to have competition. And like, that's the least thing you want in an education system because kids aren't widgets. And I hear these arguments. I'm like, it doesn't have to be like that. It does not have to be that. That's asking the wrong question. Yeah. The way I would put it is we need a new conversation. We need a new conversation that gets out of this zero sum game. And you know, being able being able to find politicians who will compromise, yeah, um, all the way down. So, how would you start this in the United States of America with fifty separate entities? How would you even begin? I mean, we have some states that have opened up to universal choice in the last yes. you know, five or six in the last year alone. Um, I think we're have we're seeing some implementation struggles, and there's going to be some you know learning curve to that, some growing mm-hmm. pains. But how is that where you would start? Just pass universal choice and see how it works. I mean, I would I would always want um, you know expanding access, yeah, to, for parents and also at least some measure of meet academic quality. You know, I, I do get very nervous about, you know, kind of having unlimited opportunities. You can pick and choose this, that, and the other. It may work great for some families. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of families or not vast majority, but other families don't have the time. Yeah. They don't have the social networks to play. I mean, network, net, networks matter in this. Parent navigators can help, but we need all those pieces in place. And I do not think we can forsake the responsibility to ensure, as our good friend Charlie Glenn says, it is an appropriate job of public policy to ensure that there are no failing schools. Oh, wow. Yeah, or, that's a big statement. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, it's, a, it's an appropriate role. Like we don't, if you look at every public program that we have, SNAP, you know, any of these things, we don't just, you know, we, we, there's a public trust involved. Yeah. And, and the fact that the district school sector has not been 100% successful because many have been successful, but that's not the reason to walk away from a better system of accountability. So correct me if I'm wrong, if you know, New York had the regents exam and then it seems like not enough kids were, were passing it. So they kind of dropped the regents exam. Do you see well, that as <laughs> yeah, I mean the regents exam is is used to be really substantial, right? If you look back yeah. at the 1920s and what the regents exams were, they were like the exit exams. That's a great yeah. example. And then they it's the problem as you just kind of alluded to is you just change the cut scores. Yeah. And that's a really bad thing. You know, now I don't think you should wait till kids are in are 18 years old before you no. break the bad news to parents. I mean the the really dark truth is Huge number of kids go to community college, cannot take credit-bearing courses, spend their Pell Grants on remediation, and mm-hmm. leave without a degree at all. This is unethical. You know, yeah. we have to start earlier with kids. And, and and to some extent, this is where, you know, I know your experience in the charter sector, really well-run charter sectors, as they have in, say, Massachusetts, have they have the site, they have the site visits. Yeah. They've got, you know, a high bar high barrier to entry and so forth. And sure and behold, they close achievement gaps in places like Boston. Yeah. You know, 
That's and right. New York and New York as well in New Jersey, you know, like those laws, the the policy details matter. It is not it, it it's a I worry about the long-term consequences of casting quality to the wind and just hoping for the best. So how has the uh how has the pandemic changed this conversation? Because I feel like now parent surveys are like I'd kind of like my child to be home two days a week, or I might want to try a micro school. And we know kids are moving around. Like a quarter of parents said their kids have switched schools in the last year. Yeah. Right? So people are trying other things out. Do you think that this has had an impact on the conversation about whether we could have a, a, a more of a pluralism system? I think so. I mean, I think, I think that it's possible that, 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 I mean, certainly the pandemic was a key driver of like, we don't know if district enrollments will ever recover to the same degree as they were pre-COVID. We just don't know. And certainly the schools that stayed open, the Catholic school sectors, you know, the Catholic schools that stayed open, the private schools were more, more likely to be open. The kids weren't, didn't drop as far off the cliff. Right. So this is, this is all going to have an impact. We don't know what it will be long-term, but we, we do know that more parents are having the experience with homeschooling, with micro schools. They're, you know, there's more, there may be some kind of tipping point at which parents say, I am, you know, I'm a Latina parent. I want my child in a, in a, in a culturally affirming school that also yeah. teaches a high bar of, you know, academics, that, that those kinds of variabilities may be able to, to be honored. Well, I think that's what what's so great about your work, Ashley, is that you're saying really difficult things. <laughs> you really like we need to change the whole system and kids aren't should not be leaving school uh, without a, a body of content knowledge, which is a huge lift. And we need to sort of uh, reorganize our whole system. And you say it in such a nice way that, you know, perhaps people will begin to I mean, because, you know, there's a lot of negatives out there. There's just a lot of um red for ed and protesting and there's a teacher's unions. I mean, there's just a lot of negative I'm in public education for sure. And lawsuits and, you know what I mean? I know. I just wish we could sort of talk about this from a, from a quieter place, which is to say parents care a lot about how their kids are doing in school. All parents, I believe all parents. I do too. I do too. And I believe that um, there aren't, aren't necessarily kids who are harder to teach. They just need more resources. That's and I right. believe that, if a parent doesn't pick your neighborhood school because they know that their child needs a better program for whatever it is, dyslexia, whatever it is, it is not an indictment of the public school. They don't need to take it personally. And I just wish that we could sort of move forward in this argument. And for me personally, the property tax argument where people are like, I, I agree. pay taxes. But I you pay see, taxes. I don't have kids in school. We all but, pay taxes to educate all the kids. But that too is dysfunctional. That. Yeah. This is the hypocrisy, correct, of people who exercise what, for want of a better word, school choice by moving to a wealthier suburb. They then deny that to families that don't have the means to move out or move to somewhere else. This is unjust. And so for me, I think that the equity argument and the progressive case for pluralism is 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 where we can really imp- we can lean into that because i my hunch is that there are a lot of of folks who are sympathetic to the equity argument but have just a lingering feeling that you're abandoning the public schools and that's where being able to say hey don't you want what the netherlands has <laughs> you know yeah. don't you want what sweden has you know? yeah you know it, it's like like let's give people the vocabulary and the perspective 
that it doesn't have to be like this. We are alone in this dogfight. Yeah. Most other countries are not doing what we're doing. Most other countries are not doing this. Most others. As they leapfrog us uh, academically, they are not having these conversations. This is the interesting thing is that some of the high-performing pluralistic countries have made the mistake of going down a progressive pedagogy hill. So France is pluralistic. They fund all different kinds of schools. Up until about 20 years ago, they had a a very rigorous curriculum that all the kids had to master, and they closed the achievement gaps by sixth grade through that curriculum. And they walked away from it on a kind of journey down portfolio learning and, Mm. you know, learn process of learning rather than learning something in particular. And not only did their absolute scores go down, but their achievement gaps widened. Mm. Now, I just found out from a colleague of mine that the Netherlands and Belgium are seeing the same trends. They Mm -hmm. started walking away from a liberal arts. Like we should, we should democratize the liberal arts. That's what works. Yeah. And parents, uh, Love the classical education model. Too. Classical I mean, education, and and, it. and you know, and 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 uh, you know, we we really believe that classical schools need. We need some proof points around that. Yeah. Um. But but uh, it it it's that could be a winning combination as long as the as long as the classics classical schools are willing to have diverse voices and women authors and things like that. So they're not all alike, right. but. Um. Yeah, we'll see. (laughs) I do think, though, what I saw happen with Common Core, I don't know, decade or so ago is when states started uh, switching to the Common Core tests and test scores went way down. Parents got really mad because they felt like it's the same kid. And like now now they're a failing student. They used. So I feel like we and Missouri is very much tinkering at the margins with competency based education, Uh just doing a couple very experimental pilot districts around it. And I don't know how, how parents are going to feel. I think the one positive is this read by fourth grade thing, the science of reading. I think read by that's third, fantastic. Fourth grade, you don't, you don't go on. And we could start with the little kids and the younger parents saying, this is how the system's going to work from now on. And then we're going to do something in eighth grade and then we're going to do something in 12th grade. But I think we can begin to get people used to the idea. I think you're so right about that. I'm very encouraged by what happened in Mississippi with oh, their yeah. science of reading. Finally, after 20 plus years of knowing that whole language didn't work, we're right. finally leaning in and I'm grateful for that. So uh, are you optimistic in general about the direction of um, education in the United States now? Um, yes and no. I think the, the the gerrymandering of the curriculum and the you know the partisanship that we see and the the, the kind of culture war mongering is yeah. a really bad thing for kids. Yeah. And it it just reinforces to me that the the burden that's on schools and teachers to provide practice with deliberation in the classroom, it's critical and it's even harder to do now than ever. So I, you know, it's look at my doctorates in history. I, you know, I would never be able, I I don't believe in predictions. I mean, I, if I were to say, oh, I'm optimistic or I'm pessimistic, I don't know. I am worried about our democracy. I'm worried about the conditions under which a democratic society is sustainable and if I get up with anything on my mind every day, it is how can we ensure that the next generation has the tools to engage in civil disagreement? And that wow. lives in the curriculum. It also lives in the professional development. It lives in the comfort of parents 
yeah. who can see the difference between exposure and indoctrination. That's the subtitle of the book that I'm releasing next spring. What's the main title? Um, Educational Pluralism in American Democracy, Exposure versus Indoctrination. And what's the title of your first book? Pluralism in American Education, No One Way to School. So the first book it. was first book was really about the structure um, and the the research around a plural structure. This one leans it much more into the curriculum and content and how do how would we navigate this with issues that are really really uh, tender, like yeah. you know the the racial 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 equity issues. How do we talk about that in the classroom in a true way, and yeah. how do we deliberate deliberate about important things in the classroom? Uh, I do think, in my opinion, um, because various school choice programs have been around now since basically the early 90s, so 35 years. And so you have parents who were in these systems, right, whose parents picked their school. And it's not like my uh, parents era when no one picked a school. Now you have parents whose parents picked a school and now they're picking schools for their kids and they're much more comfortable with it. And I do like this kind of uh, hybrid idea of, I, I kind of liked having them home once a week so I could see what they were doing. And, and I think, uh, they're a lot more open to it. And I think coming out of the b- pandemic, these people are going to turn into adults. Now, if we don't lose this whole generation, cause some of the stuff I'm reading is very depressing on yes. uh, chronic absenteeism kids who yes. after not going for a couple of years, it just can't get motivated to go now. Yes. Um, very concerned about that particular generation. And we know from the 1918 pandemic, they never caught up, but I do think that um, sort of the the stranglehold that the uh, the education system at large has had over the it's like we're the only ones that know how to do it is getting loosened up slowly. So yes. I feel like that's a good step in the right direction that we can at least all agree that you know uh, parents should be able to pick from two or three or four options. Yeah, and they should all be good options. And it's not going to be the end of public education and maybe the end of public education as we've known it, but not the end of public education. And I, right. um, I'm hopeful, you know, cause we have some States like Arizona and Florida who've been doing it for some time now yeah. and um, seeing overall improvements in uh, gaps, Florida's yes. really gone after their achievement gaps yes. and Arizona to a certain extent too, and growth and seeing that it actually can be <clears throat> a better system, but, but it, but you're right. We can't just say, let the parents pick and it'll all be okay. Like we have to have some requirement of students gaining content knowledge before they leave because our workforce, I'm just concerned is just declining in quality. It's declining in quality. I mean, you know, it, it affects every area. I mean, I have graduate students at Hopkins who don't, who cannot write with correct syntax and grammar. I mean, just it's, we're not, doing that foundational building that we used to. And that's really not good. But uh, to your point, you know, there are places like Washington, D.C., where 50 percent of the kids are in charters. And, you know, it's very divided. It's very some of the young people that I've talked to there who have little children don't even know that their school they're enrolling in is a charter versus a traditional district school. So, you know, in some places it's really moved beyond that, you know, pure combat zone. Portfolios. I mean, Indianapolis yes. is trying for portfolios. Louisiana, I mean, uh, New Orleans, trying to kind of do a portfolio with um all all without um you know emphasizing one sector or another, but like putting together uh, a group of of good schools for parents to pick from. Isn't that the goal? Right. I and mean, that's where we should be at. Well, 
Uh, I agree. Very, very, very interesting. Uh, when I use the word pluralism, I'm always trying to use it in the Ashley Burner way. <laughs> I am. But I love it because that's, it's like a cooperative one, not a contentious one. So I really like that idea of we could have a portfolio and they could all look different and every uh, parent could could find the one that's right for their children and not, you know, be at odds with their public school teacher down the street. Well, to put this in person. But to put this in perspective, the Netherlands does fund 36 different kinds of schools, but 30% of the kids still go to what we would call a district school. There's always a role for state directly delivered education, and it should not be condescended to, you know, this, these things are all, you know, there, there should be a lot more generosity of spirit and room for, for everyone. Well, I hope so. I look forward to seeing your new book when it comes out. And thank, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about this and our listeners. So I really appreciate it. Very interesting. It's, it's great to see you as, as ever. I hope we get to connect in person soon. Yeah.